Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, August 19th, 2021, and it will begin airing on Sunday, August 22nd. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, ladies? Um, I'm doing fine. Um, can't really complain enjoying the last of summer. Yeah, it's uh, it's been really, really hot, and... Um... We're having some weird technical issues now too, so um, it's all it's all just a very flustery sort of evening and week for sure. Yeah, so um, I guess the two of us are doing all right. Reese, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I am traveling right now, so I'm happy to be moving around a little bit. I'm feeling a little stuffy, but no COVID, and I'm happy to be alive. <laughs> okay, I know that's right. On this episode, we'll be discussing the renewal of the ICE contract of a detention center in New Jersey, the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, and the Biden administration's use of a federal civil rights office to deter deter states from banning universal masking in classrooms. And we also have some good news from the IPCC climate report. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news story. Emily, take it away. Alrighty, so for the local story today, um, I have, or sorry, the local story I have for today comes from an August 16th um, article from NJ Spotlight News by Monsi Alvarado titled, While Murphy Waits to Act, ICE Extends Detainee Contract. In June, lawmakers sent Murphy a bill banning deals with ICE in New Jersey. Now a private prison has renewed its contract. The article explains, quote, Governor Phil Murphy could have prevented the renewal of a contract to house immigration detainees at an Elizabeth facility, advocates said as they urged him to sign a law banning such deals in the state. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement confirmed that it has extended its contract through August 2023 with CoreCivic, one of the country's largest private prison companies to house detainees. Currently, CoreCivic leases a building in an industrial section of Elizabeth, where it houses the detainees for ICE's enforcement removal operations in New Jersey. The current population at the facility is 134, and it has a 300-bed capacity. Uh, Quote, despite having legislation on Governor Murphy's desk in June, failure to sign it into law has allowed ICE to extend its stay here, the New Jersey Alliance for Immigration Justice said in an online post Friday. Meanwhile, Portview Properties, who owns the building, filed a lawsuit in May asking the court, quote, to, to terminate its lease agreement with CoreCivic, claiming the company breached its contract by not following federal guidelines and requirements to stop the spread of COVID-19 at the facility, leading 51 people in custody to test positive for the coronavirus. Quote, CoreCivic has asked the courts to dismiss the lawsuit, and there is a hearing scheduled next month in Superior Court. Uh, quote, meanwhile, immigrate, immigrant advocates and other groups have lobbied for the rights of those detained, uh, continue, oh, have lobbied for the rights of those detained, continue to call on Murphy to sign the bill, A5207 slash S3361, that's been on his desk since June. The measure would prohibit state and local agencies, as well as private correctional facilities, from entering, renewing, or extending agreements with federal immigration authorities to detain immigrants who don't have authorization to legally live in the United States. This week, the Bronx Defenders, the Legal Aid Society, and Brooklyn Defender Services, which have represented detainees held in New Jersey detention centers uh, located in Hudson, uh, 
Essex, and Bergen County jails called for Murphy to act on the bill. The group said in a statement, not one person needs to be incarcerated during their removal proceedings. ICE detention is inhumane and unjust. It serves no purpose other than to break the spirit, fortitude, and will of people who are exercising their procedural and substantive due process rights to stay in the United States. Besides the New Jersey Alliance for Immig- oh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> quote, besides the New Jersey Alliance for Immigrant Justice, the American Civil Liberties Union has also publicly asked Murphy to sign the measure into law. The bill was approved by lawmakers in both the state Senate and Assembly in June. Um, Aliana, Aliana Alfaro, spokeswoman for the governor's office, has declined a comment on the legislation. Uh, yeah, so stuff like this is very disheartening. Um, people get worked up about all sorts of like, you know, conspiracy theories and this, that and the other thing. But so much bad stuff happens in plain sight um, for really, you know, what seems to be like dumb reasons or just people who won't act or won't act quickly enough. Or, you know, this bill was passed by the um, both by both houses at the uh, sorry, both was it not called houses <laughs> by both uh, the Senate and the House in the state? Um, you know, this is we've talked about this on the show before. Um, how this would align with you know the left leaning governor of the state as well. Um, but shit gets in the way, and sometimes there's financial backing reasoning for that. Um, it's hard to say because they haven't commented, but. Uh, yeah, it's pretty disheartening. So, like, is Phil Murphy a Democrat? Is that what you were saying, Emily? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yes, yeah, like, even though this is a blue state, or, you know, technically, you're right, there's a lot that I think flies under the radar, like, when somebody isn't wearing, like, a big neon sign that mm-hmm. I'm a horrible person and I hate X group of people, like, they can get away with a lot because there's just not as much attention on what they're doing, but all these same things are still happening under them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I did a, a it might've been a similar story about this issue um, last year, earlier this year. And um, it was a group of democratic lawmakers and one, you know, people were saying like, Oh, um, or some of those lawmakers were saying, Oh, this is just such a huge like financial gain for the area. And the people were like, like, who do you represent right now? Because the arguments you're making are sound very Republican, right? Like these are human lives we're talking about. Um, they should not be used for profit. Um, and again, I'm not saying we don't know why the governor didn't sign that into law. It could just be, um, you know, a misappropriation of time and whatever, which would, you know, I mean, who knows, but um, these are serious issues in people's lives or, you know, um, at stake in some scenarios. So yeah, like I do, I do think that the fact that this is a private prison contract says a lot because a lot of people don't realize how much of a, like the incentive to keep prisons full or to have them going because of like economic concerns. But yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate or they're not really aware of how much like there's cities and towns that depend on having a prison being the source of like jobs and income for the people in that community. And it's really, it's like a very dark macabre like side of this whole thing where it's like they will build a jail and they will find a way to fill it, even if it means mm-hmm. putting people in there that haven't done anything that's criminally wrong it's just a civil offense. Like if you cross a border Mm -hmm. illegally, but 
you know, if you have that space and the purpose is to fill it and to employ people to run it, like it will get full up of people like over bullshit, even in the midst of a pandemic where like being detained like that is a great health concern. So yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't know how many people were detained over the course of the pandemic. The article just says that there's currently 134 people. Um, but you know, they said about 50 people, 51 people tested positive for COVID during the pandemic. So like a full like third, or I'm sorry, like, yeah, almost more than a third of the population um, came down with COVID, you know, because of just, I mean, I, the, the owners of the building are saying that, you know, it's enough to revoke the contract, whatever, you know, I guess negligence may have been happening on the part of um, ownership. And again, right. That happens with private companies. Sometimes if the, if the goal is, more money in your pockets, you're going to do as much as you can to cut corners often, right? If the goal is not protecting the community, if the goal is not, you know, help public health, right? If the goal is money, um, a lot of those other things um, fall to the wayside. At the end of the day, that's all like a lot of these people care about is cash, which is a shame and a disgrace, but, you know, as much as, you know, I, I would never discourage people from voting or like taking part in the electoral process completely, but it can be very depressing to know that ultimately, like whatever ideals a lot of these politicians claim to be representing at the end of the day, it boils down to who's paying what and like what, you know, lobbies are willing to put forth the most resources to get what they want, regardless of you know, whatever values they claim to have. Yeah. And that, that can often happen. I mean, hopefully like knock on wood, like governor Murphy does sign this, right. It, he hasn't um, vetoed or vetoed it yet. I guess he would still have veto power would be the alternative to signing it into law. Um, you know, but like those other politicians that I heard about um, like lower, lower level politicians, I think local, but um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's very easy for people to get caught in the trap of, of just more money is worth it at all costs. Right. So it's not. And, uh, ice, you know, or I'm sorry, not ice shouldn't exist because, um, you know, people who are not yet citizens have not, again, as Jasmine said, broken the law. They do not need to be locked up. Uh, I'm sorry. They have not committed a criminal offense. I should say it's a civil offense. So, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one good thing about that article you listed is it does have a number of different organizations in it that are trying to help um, get this bill to be signed and to help, you know, the the detainees. So we'll refresh um, some of the resources we shared on our social media from when this story first came out, like last year when Emily reported on it. And we'll share the links to the groups that are currently working on this now in addition. So... Yeah, but I mean, it's good. Thanks for the update. So we know, you know, what's happening now, because it's easy to kind of lose track of like what's happening with stuff like as it unfolds. But yeah, it's, it's more than just the initial headline, like these things take a long time to finally like resolve Mm -hmm. if they do. Yeah. and, And stories like these often also, I feel like don't make it to the front page of the news, right? Because there are there's a lot going on in the world. But um yeah, I mean, this this is important and it's going to affect a lot of people. That's absolutely true, Emily. I can hear you just a little bit now. Um, but thank you so much for sharing that story. 
Um, definitely important information for us to keep track of. You know, people, it's important that we don't just think of ICE and, and external sort of, um, you know, something that happens at the border. This stuff happens every day, all the time to regular people. And we need to be mindful of what is happening in our own communities. So very important information to keep track of. So we're going to go ahead and pop into our first music break for the day. Uh, the first track is called Cold Harbor Lane, and it's by Mayel Menzanza. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news story, we will be discussing a story in the New York Times. The title of the article is The Biden Administration Will Use a Federal Civil Rights Office to Deter States from Banning Universal Masking in Classrooms. Okay, and the author of this article is Cheryl Gay Stroberg and Erica L. Green. President Biden escalating his fight with Republican governors who are blocking local school districts from repairing, requiring masks to protect against the coronavirus, said Wednesday that his education department would use its broad powers, including taking possible legal action to deter states from barring universal masking in classrooms. Mr. Biden said he had directed Miguel Cordona, his educational secretary, to take additional steps to protect our children, including against governors who he said are setting a dangerous tone and issuing executive orders banning mask mandates and threatening to penalize school officials who defy them. Unfortunately, as you've seen through this pandemic, some politicians are trying to turn public safety measures, that is, children wearing masks in school, into political disputes for their own political gain. Mr. Biden said in remarks from the East Room of the White House, adding, we are not going to sit by as governors try to block the immediate educators protecting our children. The federal intervention comes as school districts face a monumental task of trying to get students back to in-person learning and reverse the devastating setbacks experienced by a range of students. Mr. Biden's move puts the federal government at the center of bitter local debates over how to mitigate against the virus in schools just as a highly infectious Delta variant is fueling a spike in pediatric cases. In an interview on Wednesday, Dr. Cardona said, like the president, he was appalled that there are adults who are blind to their blindness, that there are people who are putting policies in place that are putting students and staff at risk. At the end of the day, he said, we shouldn't be having this conversation. What we're dealing with now is negligence. Dr. Cardona said he would deploy the Education Department's civil rights enforcement arm to investigate states that block universal masking. The move marks a major turning point in the Biden administration's efforts to get as many students as possible back to in-person schooling this fall. The nation's most vulnerable students, namely students with disabilities, low-income students, and students of color, have suffered the deepest setbacks since districts pivoted to remote learning in March 2020 and their disproportionate disengagement has long drawn concern from education leaders and civil rights watchdogs. Under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, students are entitled to a free, appropriate public education known as FAPE, and Title, Title V, sorry, and Title IV of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination based on race, color, and national origin. If state policies and actions rise to potential violation of students' civil rights, the department could initiate its own investigations into districts and investigate complaints made by parents and advocates who argue that prohibiting mass mandates could deny students' rights to education by putting them in harm's way in school. A report released by the department's civil rights office this summer provided a snapshot of the suffering students have experienced. It noted that the pandemic challenges were particularly acute for students with disabilities whose educational success relies on classroom time and hands-on services. I've heard those parents saying, Miguel, because of these policies, my child cannot access their school. I would be putting them in harm's way, Dr. Cardona said. 
And to me, that goes against a free, appropriate public education. That goes against the fundamental beliefs of educators across the country to protect their students and provide a well-rounded education. The administration will also send letters to six states, Arizona, Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Utah, admonishing governor's efforts to ban universal masking in schools. Last week, Dr. Cardona sent similar letters to the governors of Texas and Florida, reminding them that districts had both the funding and the discretion to implement safety measures that the CDC recommended for schools. The secretary also made it clear that he supported district leaders who defied the governor's orders. So this story is really important as we are entering back into the fall session. I know it's so much confusion right now with students and parents, even um, on the collegiate level as to what is to be expected. But I think at the very least, if we're going to bring students back, they have to have on mask. I mean, that's the only thing that we can do to try to protect ourselves. And the Delta variant is taking a toll on young people. So it's pretty scary that these governors are out here still um, defying this mask mandate as if people have a choice from getting sick. What do you ladies think? Yeah, I think that um, there's just so much of this country well and I, we're seeing it in a lot of places where the numbers are really surging right now is is the, you know the reaction to the pandemic is just defiance right like they don't want to wear masks they don't want to get vaccinated um and there are very real consequences for for those things right it's a very anti-scientific um like isolationist sort of you know feels like um response to something that really involves needs requires a community response like a really strong one too um and you know and of course like masks don't you know 100 percent. yeah i mean there's going to be issues regardless but to just not wear masks is going to really really exacerbate those issues to a really high degree um and i you know i can only imagine people in academia how stressful it must be right now gearing up for the fall yeah, I mean, I, the thing to me that bothers me the most is how there's this desire and this drive and this stubbornness to just go back to normal no matter what, which to me is the main issue because, you know, even though, like, yeah, like people who, like children who are disabled and everything are going to fall behind more when they need in-person services, I feel like, yeah, it's like disabled kids are missing out because they're not able to do in-person instruction, but it seems kind of like instead of just waiting until doing in-person when it's safe for everyone, it's like, let's do like a halfway measure that's kind of safe, maybe if everyone follows all these exact protocols, but will probably still lead to outbreaks, like especially with kids, like mm-hmm. kids wearing masks. It's just, you know, especially like if they're young kids, like that's just, it's not going to be perfect. So, you know, like my wish for this whole situation were for there to be like some force behind just making it so everyone who can't, who who needs to stay home is able to stay home. Mm -hmm. But as long as there's like this, um, I, I don't know. I just, I find it so, so, so depressing to see like this unwillingness to just force everything to just pause until it's as safe as possible for everyone. 
But instead, yeah. there's just this massive push to just force things to try to go back into a routine that is not safe, you know, especially with children not being able to be vaccinated. You know, it's yeah. like, I guess this is better than them doing nothing, but it's still like, it's not, it's going to be bad. Like, I just, I have a bad feeling. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, too, um, you know, that that time for it's been going on for so long, all of this, that I think what's in my mind, I don't know how to phrase this. Like, I think that the time I was a full supporter of let's do nothing until this is passed and no one was doing that. So everything just kept going and going. And now we're, you know, over, you know, a year and a half later, we're still dealing with this stuff. Um, But I think there it's, I think it's very tricky. And I think um, that there, I think there's, some very real mental health issues and, and developmental stop gaps that people are concerned about. Like that's, I think why so many um, legislatures, legislators are so intent on bringing children back to in-person learning is because I think many people, parents and teachers and government officials and, you know, medical practitioners are worried about kids being at home and not in a social air like space and not in like in-person learning um and how much that's going to affect them emotionally and developmentally at this point and I mean you know because a year and a half is a very long time for a young person um and a lot of um really important experiences that they haven't been able to have but I think it it is a very tricky situation right now for sure especially because of how long this has been going on for right and like you know if you think about it it's been it's like a full the 2020, 2021 year was fully, you know, remote for some people. And it was the end of the previous year and now the beginning of the following year as well. And that's like quite a bit of time. If you remember, you know, that's almost someone's entire like middle school experience, right? Um, it's a lot and it's very scary. And I think you're right about the children who are especially, um, you know, have a, a disability or an immune system issue. Um, yeah, it's it's a very worrying time. Yeah, the one thing I would say to that is I do agree with you. And, you know, not just with kids, but with adults, like mental Mm -hmm. health, it's a strain. But it's like there's that. But I also feel like it's a I don't know if catch 22 is the right word, but it's like the longer that there's resistance against having like a complete shutdown until everything's our, everything is safe, the longer nothing will be safe and the more yeah. dragged out this will be. It's like there's schools that are shutting down within days now yeah. that have gone back in person. So it's like, I do agree that, yeah, like there is, it stressed me out, you know, and I don't have any type of special, like, I don't have a disability, like, I'm not immunocompromised, like, I can't imagine what it would be like for someone to have to deal with that, or being a kid and dealing with it, but it's like, as long as the response is kind of like this patchwork quilt of, like, half-ass measures, it's like, it's never gonna end, and I think that's, that's, like, where my frustration is, it's like, there could have been a much shorter time frame of a very serious like lockdown for sure. And then maybe we could have been in a place where it would have been enough of the year could have been salvaged. It wouldn't have been so bad for so many other kids, but it's like you got different cities, different states, different parts in the same city wanting to do their own thing. It just feels like it's, it's hard to see like an end on the horizon. I almost think that, 
to me, it seems that the preference will be given to students with disabilities to have their time back on campus as opposed to all other students. I don't like to have like a, you know, piecemeal uh, portion of education. However, students with disabilities are being set back so far from this and it takes them a really long time to get socialized enough to receive the training and education that they do um, with the assistance. And then also for the educators who have to work with these students, a lot of their success comes from building relationships and consistency. So when you play with that on both sides for the educator and the student, everyone is set back so far. I really hate how they're the last ones that are considered in this argument. I understand that parents have to work. Students need to go back to school so they can have normal lives. But at the end of the day, it's these students who have the most challenges and the educators that care for them who are the last on the agenda. It's almost like maybe they should have a separate component of the school just to handle these situations. Because if it's just going to keep going back and forth and we're not sure what we're going to do, these students are consistently left in the dark. You know, not to say that other students can, you know, do well with with online learning. I know a lot of students and parents struggle so much with that. And most students really don't like doing it. But the students with disabilities or people with special needs who really need that in-person interaction, they need to be the front of this agenda. And I really hate that we have to call out federal laws to stop governors from protecting students. It's, it's absurd. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really a mess. It's really a shame. And I do think a lot of the rhetoric about kids can't get it and stuff. It's like, you know, and like disability is a very broad spectrum. It's like, there's people that are disabled that need like a lot of in-person physical care. And then there's people with disabilities where they might thrive in a remote environment and an in-person one is very difficult for them. Like there's a big spectrum, but there's also people that I feel like we're just kind of like all that rhetoric about like kids don't get COVID or it's not a big deal when they get it. It's like, it depends on the kid. Like, you know, it's almost like there was this willingness to just be like, you know, if the child is medically fragile, then it just doesn't matter. Like what kind of risks like they're running, like, it's just, it's fine. So yeah, like it's definitely a very, it's a complicated situation. It's very, you know, and there's also someone made a good point about like, not everyone who's a parent that maybe doesn't feel safe sending their kids in, especially if you're like a parent of color, or maybe you're poor, like that could mean your kid is taken away from you if you try to exercise your right to keep your kid at home. So you might not even have a choice. But it's just so it just sucks that, you know, kids are suffering because adults can't get their shit together. All right. Well, thank you so much for that fruitful discussion, ladies. We're going to go ahead and hop into our next music break before getting some world news and some good news. Um, the next song I have for us today is by a young lady named Erin Allen Kane, and the song is called Feel the Need. We'll be right back.
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Jasmine with our world news story. Take it away. All right. So um, this is a it's it's a little bit long because I wanted to um, highlight some background information and then go into the more recent developments. But I'll be talking about what's been happening with the Taliban taking over uh, Afghanistan in recent days. Uh, So the first article that I'm reading from, it's from um, an article on Al Jazeera. It's called The History of the Taliban, and it's from just a couple days ago. Um, So many leaders of the Taliban prior to the formation of the armed group in the um, early 1990s fought alongside the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet occupation in the 1980s. The Mujahideen received weapons and money from the U.S. as part of its policy during the Cold War. 
At the time, the Soviets were backing the communist leaders who had staged a coup against the nation's first president, Mohammed Dawood Khan, in 1978. After the Soviets pulled out in 1989, there was chaos, and by 1992, there was a full-blown civil war with Mujahideen commanders fighting for power and dividing the capital city of Kabul, which was showered daily with hundreds of rockets from all directions. The Taliban armed group emerged as a substantial player in the early 1990s. Many of its members had studied in conservative religious schools in Afghanistan and across the border in Pakistan. They made quick military gains, winning control of Kandahar, the biggest city after Kabul, and promising to make the city safe. After years of war, people generally welcomed them fed up with the Mujahideen commanders and their forces who were accused of rights abuses and war crimes in their struggle for power. By 1996, the Taliban seized the capital and hanged the nation's last communist president, Najibullah Ahmadzai, in a public square. It declared Afghanistan an Islamic emirate and started imposing its ultra-strict interpretation of Islamic law. It was recognized by only three countries, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan. The group managed to bring a semblance of normalcy and decided to tackle endemic corruption, winning some initial popularity. But the Taliban never ceased the restrictions it initially imposed to, it said, ensure, the, ensure that the civil war crimes would not be repeated. The restrictions including banning women from education and employment except for female doctors. Anyone who did not obey could be jailed or beaten publicly. Its six-year rule was marked by abuse of ethnic and religious minorities and curbs on, seeming, and curbs on seemingly innocuous activities and pastimes such as music and television. In the lead-up to the U.S. invasion, the group had asked the U.S. President George W. Bush administration to provide proof of bin Laden's role in the 9-11 attacks and later for negotiations with Washington. However, George Bush rejected both. Subsequently, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan on October 7th after the Taliban refused to hand over al-Qaeda's leader bin Laden, who was hiding in Afghanistan after being initially invited back to the country by former Mujahideen commander Abdul Rab Rasul Saif. Bin Laden was considered the mastermind between the deadliest attack on U.S. soil. The Taliban was toppled within a couple of months um, af after the start of a bombing campaign by the U.S. and its, and its allies, and a new interim government headed by Hamid Karzai was formed in December 2001. Three years later, there was a new constitution declared. It took cues from the reformed constitution of the 60s, in which women and ethnic minorities were formally granted their rights by the nation's last king, Mohammed Zaire Shah. By 2006, the toppled Taliban had regrouped and was able to mobilize fighters in its battle against foreign occupiers and its allies. The 20 years of conflict divided, uh, the 20 years of conflict devastated Afghanistan with more than 40,000 civilian ki civilians killed in attacks by both the Taliban and US-led forces. 
at least 64,000 Afghan military and police, and more than 3,500 international soldiers were also killed. The U.S. has spent almost $1 trillion on the war and reconstruction projects, but the country still remains poor and its infrastructure is in tatters. Um, so that's a little bit of um, background to what has been happening in recent days. And this is more about what's happening now. This is from AP News called Taliban Take Over Afghanistan, What We Know and What's Next by Joseph Krauss. Um, so the Taliban seized power recently in Afghanistan two weeks before the U.S. was set to complete its troop withdrawal. The insurgents stormed across the country, capturing major cities in a matter of days. As Afghan security forces trained and equipped by the U.S. and its allies melt melted away. After they blitzed across the country in recent days, the Western-backed government that has run the country for 20 years collapsed. Afghans, fearing for the future, raced to the airport, one of the last routes out of the country. Um, I don't know. This is me talking. I don't know if you've seen some of the images of people trying to cling like to airport to airplanes leaving the country, but it was pretty um, disturbing to see. Um, so Afghans trying to leave now are worried that the country could descend into chaos or the Taliban could carry out revenge attacks against those who worked with the Americans or the government. Many are also afraid that the Taliban will reimpose the harsh interpretation of Islamic law that they relied on when they ran Afghanistan from 96 to 2001. Um, in, like recently, the Taliban is trying to present themselves as a more moderate force. Um, they've since promised to respect women's rights and forgive those who fought against them and prevent Afghanistan from being used as a base for terror attacks. But understandably, many Afghans are skeptical of these promises. Um, so, yeah, it's like they also go on to say in this article, like part of the reason why the Afghan security forces collapsed um, has to do with corruption. The U.S. and its NATO allies spent billions of dollars over two decades to train and equip Afghan security forces. But the Western-backed government was rife with corruption. Commanders exaggerated the number of soldiers to siphon off resources, and troops in the field often lacked ammunition, supplies, or even food. Their morale further eroded when it became clear the U.S. was on its way out. As the Taliban rapidly advanced in recent days, entire units surrendered after brief battles, and Kabul and some nearby provinces fell without a fight. So yeah, like I'm not going to go um, much further into what these articles are saying. There's a lot of information to cover. Um, but I did want to mention um, a woman that I follow on Twitter. Her name is Sana Alimia. If you go to twitter.com forward slash S-A-N-A-A-A-L-I-M-I-A, she has a very long, like, well, not too long, but a list of English language scholars that are experts on um, the history of the region and Western intervention in the area. If you would like more background information about Afghanistan, um, and also NPR has a link on ways that you can help um, Afghan refugees that are trying to flee the country or that are, have been able to get out. 
Um, so I'll be sure to put those links up on our social media pages and share resources um, where you can find more information. Yeah, I um, like growing up, you know, in Bush era, like a child, um, elementary school, middle school, immediately in like the aftermath of 9-11, I feel like um, I never really had, I mean, that was obviously, you know, a few minutes of summary about like the Taliban in Afghanistan. But I think um, I certainly appreciated, I think, getting that background on it, because I think, um, yeah, as an American who grew up during like Bush era uh, politics, it's it's a lot of like that word was thrown around, you know, a million and a half times without really an understanding of um, what it actually means. Um which, you know, is neither, you know, isn't necessarily like a, for, you know, for better or for worse. Um, but I do appreciate that just historical background of the situation. It's really sad to see the imagery that's been in the news um, of people just, you know, strapping to the planes and all of the talk that's been about the female citizens of this country and what will happen under the Taliban. Um, definitely prayers up and hope that they can get their country organized in a way that is best for their people. Um, this has been a very long time that the U.S. has been there, and I think it makes sense that we are retreating at this point. However, you know, we can't go in, make them make their country work the way we think it should work. Um, you know, countries are sovereign and they need to find leadership and ways to function within themselves. So I hope that the Taliban um, works with with the country in a different way than it did before um, and that people are safe, but we really just don't know what's going to happen at this point. And um, yeah, um, I guess there's more to see. Emily, please grace us with the good news. So um, I don't know about y'all, but the, that intergovernmental panel on climate change or better known as IPCC report that came out recently had me spiraling more than a little bit. Um, essentially, it's a grim existential crisis sort of report on global warming and the future of our planet. Um, and when I get spirally, I start like panic Googling, like, you know, please, like, <laughs> let me find something that's like some bright side of this or like, you know, something that's not um, super crisis -y. But um, and I did find something. I stumbled across an August 12th article from Yale Climate Connections by Dana Nuccitelli titled, uh, the new IPCC report includes, get this, good news. Tucked into the abundant bad news about worsening extreme weather and unavoidable warming is a key message and reason for hope, if not yet confidence. The Paris targets are still within reach. The article explains that when the IPCC released its sixth, sixth assessment report, quote, much of the associated media coverage carried a tone of inevitable doom. Uh, quote, while United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres rightly called the report a code red for humanity, tucked into it are details illustrating that if, big if, top emitting countries respond to the IPCC's alarm bells with aggressive efforts to curb carbon pollution, the worst climate outcomes remain avoidable. Quote, there is no tipping point temperature at which it becomes too late to curb climate change and its damaging consequences. Every additional bit of global warming above current temperatures will result in increased risks of worsening extreme weather. Sorry, will result in increased risks of worsening extreme weather of the sorts currently being experienced around the world. 
Achieving the aspirational 1.5 degrees Celsius Paris target may be politically infeasible, but most countries, 137 total, have either committed to or, or are in the process of setting a target for net zero emissions by 2050, including the United States or 2060, including China. That makes the SSP1 scenario, um, actually, can you cut that, Jasmine? I'm sorry. Um, that makes a, a scenario, quote, we're limiting global warming to less than two degrees Celsius, a distinct possibility, depending on how successful countries are at following through with decarbonization plans over the coming three decades. And with this proposed infrastructure bipartisan and budget reconciliation legislative plans, for which final enactment of each remains another big if, the United States could soon implement some of the bold investments and policies necessary to set the world's second largest carbon polluter on a track consistent with the Paris targets. Um, and then I also found on August, uh, an article from August 13th by the great Rebecca Solnit um, in The Guardian titled, the, IPCC, <clears throat> the IPCC's latest climate report is dire, but it also included some prospects for hope. Quote, quote climate change is a nightmare and this summer's floods, fires, and extreme heat from China to Siberia to British Columbia are reminders that the problem is rapidly growing worse. Yet the striking thing about the IPCC report released earlier this month is not the bad news, which is not really news at all for those who have followed the science closely. It's the clarity about possibilities, which I found hopeful. What was remarkable in the IPCC report was put most succinctly in University of Leeds climate physicist Pierce Forster's pair of tweets on Monday, outlining the good and bad news from the report. The bad news was familiar. We are seeing more intense and more frequent weather extremes. We are close to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming and will reach it by mid-century. But the good news is that there is, Forster reported, much more certainty that if we get to net zero uh, carbon, sorry, if we get to net zero CO2, its contributions to further warming are also likely to stop. At net zero, the temperature change could even start to slowly go into reverse. That is, we can halt and even reverse some of the devastation. Quote, it's a long shot. It will take heroic effort, unprecedented cooperation, and visionary commitment. It would mean making profound changes in our societies, economies, our ways of doing things. But it is possible to do, and we know how to do it. I wrote to Forster, who wrote back to me that the good news for him began with the advances in scientific understanding and their precision. He wrote, there is also good news from the new science. We find that the risk of seeing abrupt changes or tipping points in our climate, such as the Gulf Stream stopping, Antarctic ice sheet suddenly collapse, sudden collapse, or the Amazon forest dieback are low and will be very unlikely indeed if we can hold temperature rise close to 1.5 Celsius. Through improved climate projections, we know, we know exactly the emission path the planet needs to take to hold temperatures to close to 1.5 Celsius of warming. We need to at least have global emissions by 2034 and reach net zero CO2 emissions by mid-century. Quote, one of the seldom stressed aspects of what climate demands of us is that it is essentially a mandate to build a better world, a cleaner, more equitable, more cooperative world, cooperative with nature as well as with each other. The status quo cannot continue. The paths forward are more or less heaven or hell. And if we get to the relative heaven of a post-carbon world, we will see what kind of hell the age of fossil fuels always was, from the foul toxicity of oil, gas, and coal, and the millions they kill annually, to the corruption of our politics. Quote, there's a long-running joke that the most effective carbon sequestra sequest <clears throat> sequestration technology is called a tree. 
Forster put it this way. The other thing I find amazing is that nature continues to work hard to save our asses with forests and growth and growth in ocean life continuing to suck up much of the car much of carbon we emit. In fact, the report shows that it is that that it is this that makes the net zero targets work. We know what to do. We know how to do it. The only question is whether we will do it, um, though, from activists to scientists, many already are wholeheartedly. The fear of a far worse world should spur us on, but the hope of a better one can motivate us too. At the climate summit in Glasgow in less than three months, public pressure must make the world's governments commit to saving the world and hold them to it in the years to come. Um, yeah, so, you know, here's looking up, hopefully, but um, we actually make this shit happen. One step at a time, that's all we can do, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for that story, Emily. And thank you to all of you who had listened to our show today. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Please listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to go out, go ahead and play you out with one more track for today. This song is by Toby Nwege, and it's called Try Jesus. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Try Jesus, not me, cause I throw hands. Try Jesus, please don't try me, because I fight. Touch me on mine, we gon' have to scrap. So, try Jesus, please don't try me, because I fight. I have no problem laying these hands. Try Jesus, don't try me. Cause I throw hands Try Jesus Please don't try me Because I fight Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Elevate Pharmacy, offering little or no cost medical braces. More information is available at 844 598 6639.